Okay, this morning we're going to be breaking from our Bible stories just to focus our thoughts on communion, on the Lord's table, on the Lord's supper, on the why and how. I want to just ask some questions about what we are doing here uh, and to check those actions, our monthly or however often we have this, uh, compare them to what the Bible actually says about the Lord's Supper. I don't want to do what the church tells us to do, or what tradition tells us to do. I want to do this thing according to the Bible. And so I encourage you this morning, and maybe you're wondering, what can he ever teach me about communion? Well, probably nothing, but it's just going to be a reminder as to what we're doing as we come together as the church to break bread. So if you'll turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and we're going to read that passage of scripture that the apostle Paul penned to the Corinthian church. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, in the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. Imagine having to read that <laughs> from the great apostle. I've got nothing good to say about you. Your meetings, your church meetings, do more harm than good. And this is what he says. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions amongst you. So he's got a real issue saying, come on, man. You know, this, the story of uh, fighting and, and unforgiveness and all this horrible stuff going on, uh, there's no praise for that at all. At all, And he says, to some extent, I believe it about these divisions. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. And then he says, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. For as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes <laughs> I'm just thinking, imagine if we got together and had a feast every time we had the Lord's Supper and we had a whole lot of people who ended up getting drunk. This is what it looked like, you know, in the church when they got together. <laughs> One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Then he says, don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. And then he gives us the pattern that we know so well. For I received from the Lord what I passed on to you. Remember, he wasn't part of the apostles, that, or the disciples that would have been present at that last supper. He received this directly from the Lord Jesus himself. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, 
Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why among you, many among you, are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep or died. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home, so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further directions. Lord, as we look at this most important ordinance, time that we come together to remember you, I pray that you would spark our hearts again in gratitude and joy over the Savior who has died in our place, on our behalf, with thanksgiving, Lord. Help us to understand, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, <clears throat> perhaps in terms of uh, how we do communion now, there are two things that we do very well. Number one, you will never get full on what we give you to eat. <laughs> so, so you're not going to come here because you're hungry. And number two, you're not going to get drunk because it's grape juice. <laughs> so we've got some things in our favor. Anyway, let's ask some questions. Question number one, where does this Lord's Supper communion come from? Well, quite simply, the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke all report the Last Supper that Jesus had with his disciples on the night before he died, all with similar statements that he makes. Each one describes Jesus giving thanks or blessing the bread and the cup and giving them to his disciples, saying basically, the bread is his body, the cup is his blood of the covenant or the new covenant in his blood. And in Luke's gospel, he specifically says, do this in remembrance of me, as we've read here this morning. As far as we can tell from the earliest records, the church did exactly what Jesus told them to do. They reenacted that supper in remembrance of him and his death. In our reading today, Paul refers to an event in the life of the church called the Lord's Supper. And it's called the Lord's Supper because it was instituted or ordained by the Lord Jesus and because its very meaning celebrates the memory of our Lord's death. And it seems that the Lord himself, as I mentioned earlier, confirmed for Paul, who wasn't at that Last Supper himself, he confirmed for Paul what the others had reported about this thing called the Last Supper. So where does it come from to answer that question? Well, Jesus himself is the origin of the Lord's Supper, that final supper that he ate with his disciples on the night before he was crucified. He commanded it, that it continued, so he remains the content and the focus of it. 
Why are we celebrating the Lord's Supper today? Or rather, where does it come from? It comes from the Lord Jesus. He told us to do it, so we do it. The second question that we have to ask is, who should participate in this? Who should participate? I want to say that the Lord's Supper is an act of the gathered family of those who believe in Jesus. It is for the church. This is not an act for unbelievers. Unbelievers may well be present, but it's not specified, it's not directed to, and it's not beneficial in any way to unbelievers. It's a public act of worship. It's a public declaration by the gathered church. This is not secretive. It's not cultic. It's not a ritual. It's not something that contains magical powers. It's the church's proclamation of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ and all that contains therein until he comes again. So if you're an unbeliever here today, what you're seeing us doing is not some magical impartation of anything in our bodies to make us right with God. Rather, it is a public act of worship and declaration by the church. It's, it's primarily intended as well for the church. I've heard lots spoken about private uh, communion and, you know, when you're alone by, when you're flat there in sitting in London, you must have break bread by yourself. It's not primarily intended for that at all. It's intended for the church. We see that five times in this little reading today, Paul speaks of the church coming together when the Lord's Supper is eaten. So that is our primary place that we have the Lord's Supper, is when we as the church come together in unity, when we assemble uh, to meet with Jesus. Those people who have turned from wicked ways, trusted in Jesus alone for the forgiveness of sin, for the hope of eternal life, for the satisfaction of their souls, these are, these are Christians. This is for Christians. So the participants in the Lord's Supper are always the gathered believers in Jesus. Got it? So, what should it look like? Well, the Lord's Supper is not the consumption of a seven-course meal. It's simple. It's eating bread and it's drinking from the cup. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took that bread. When he had given thanks... He broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after they'd had that bread, very simply, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. There's nothing specified about the kind of bread or the kind of wine, the way it is broken or anything else. It's simply referred to as the fruit of the vine in the Gospels. And we don't make a big thing over whether it's wine or whether it's grape juice. That's not the issue. It's the fruit of the vine. There's nothing in the text that forbids or commands one or the other. I've heard big fights about this. It has to be wine or it has to be grape juice or it has to be something else. Um, I remember once we, uh, as a music team, many years ago, we did a... Uh, we had a little band at the church I was in at the time. 
and we had a, a, a performance time in uh, a church in East London, and I was sitting next to Uncle Lionel Pletschke. Some of you might remember Uncle Lionel Pletschke. And the Dwemini had told us beforehand, he said, the light one is the grape juice and the dark one is the wine. So if you don't want the wine, have the, you know. So Lionel and I are sitting next to each other and Lionel says to me, which one's the grape juice, which one? I said, Uncle Lionel, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I think it's that one. So we both took what we thought was the grape juice and we clopped it back when we had to take it and I just heard Uncle Lionel say, <laughs> out quite loudly <laughs> I mean yeah we're in this this church that's very silent and quiet and you just get this <laughs> we knew we had got the wrong stuff Bible doesn't say anything whether it's grape juice whether it's right it's fruit of the wine it doesn't say anything about its frequency it just says we must do it whenever we do it, we do it in remembrance of him. So some churches do it every week, some churches do it once a year, some people do it once a month, we kind of aim it once a month. Got nothing to do with frequency. It's a simple meal, meal together, and we've got to get away perhaps from the understanding of meal because it's just a little bit of bread and a little bit of wine as we remember Jesus. Okay, so that's what it should look like. Who or what is the focus? Well, that might seem like a no-brainer, but I want to say this. In some church traditions, the focus is very clearly on either the power of the priest who's administering the things or the elements themselves. So the focus in some traditions, some denominations so-called Christian denominations, the focus is on what the priest does and what the bread and wine become. So there will be some traditions that will say, after the priest has said his magic prayers, they wouldn't call it magic prayers, but after the priest has prayed over the bread and the wine, it has transformed itself supernaturally into the actual body and the actual blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's just, that's just a little bit far-fetched for anyone who understands that these things are elements. That bread is still the bread. That cup is still the cup. It hasn't transformed into anything. Remember many years ago, many years ago, probably close to 30 years ago, having a combined service, an early sunrise service on an Easter Sunday on the Dale Fields here on yeah, Easter Sunday, and a wind came up and blew the little wafers, they were light, white wafers that we were going to have communion, blew it across the field. And two of the gentlemen there were in an absolute panic because the body of Jesus was blowing all over the rugby field, you know, scattering. Uh, there's some traditions maybe less intense as that, that once the stuff's been prayed over, it's got to be finished because it's, it's been transformed into the blood. Ever wonder why some priests have got red noses? 
it's, <laughs> it's because they've got to finish what they've, what they've blessed. And I'm pretty sure that many of them bless more than they should. <laughs> and some of them have it every single day, so they've got to bless the stuff every day. <laughs> yeah. The New Testament, however, is clear. Jesus said he is the focus. The focus is not the bread, it's not the cup, and it's certainly not the priest in all his magical garb uh, that sometimes looks like a wizard of Oz that sort of waves over it and it suddenly becomes the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said he is the focus. And even as we do the physical act of eating and drinking, though, we are to do the mental act of remembering We've got to mentally engage here. We've, we've got to realize that it's all about Jesus, calling to mind the person of Jesus. He once lived. He once worked, walked amongst us. He died. He rose again. He's coming again. And all that it means for the forgiveness of our sins. See, the Lord's Supper for me is a stark reminder time after time that Christianity is not some new age spirituality. It's not getting in touch with your inner being. It's not mysticism. It's rooted in historical facts. Jesus lived. Jesus died publicly on a Roman cross in the place of sinners so that anyone who believes on him might be rescued from the wrath of God. It happened once and it happened for all time. It's a historical fact. So who or what is the focus? It's Jesus. But while I'm focusing on Jesus, mentally I'm engaged. He's done it on my behalf. We think of the bread and the cup, the body, the blood, the execution, the death, the burial, and hallelujah, the resurrection. We focused on Jesus. Well, speaking about the mental aspect, is there perhaps a spiritual element to the Lord's Supper. See, it's easy to reduce this meal just to something we do because we're instructed to. It can even become a careless, thoughtless habit. But could there be more? Well, for the Lord's Supper to be what Jesus means for it to be, something more must be happening than only eating, drinking, and remembering. See, it's possible for unbelievers to have almost done everything so far. They can eat, they can drink, they can even remember or think about what Jesus did. There must be something that unbelievers and the devil cannot do. And undoubtedly, yes. Let's back up a little bit in 1 Corinthians to chapter 10, where the Apostle Paul writes, Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ. And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? See, there's something deeper here. There's something spiritual happening here, and it's for believers, those who trust and treasure the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul says those believers are participating in the body and the blood of Christ. Literally, 
we are experience, uh, experiencing a sharing in his body and in his blood. Experiencing, if you like, a partnership in his death. What does participation mean? Well, simply put, partaking, participating, partaking of Christ's body and blood spiritually and by faith. A non-believer can't do that. See, when believers eat and drink the blood, uh, eat and drink the cup physically, we do another kind of eating and drinking, a spiritual kind. In a sense, we take into our lives this that happened on the cross. By faith, we're trusting in all that God is for us in Jesus. By faith, we are nourishing ourselves, in a sense, with the benefits that Jesus obtained for us when he bled and he died on the cross. So today, again, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we feast spiritually by faith on all the promises of God bought by the blood of Jesus. No unbeliever, no demon, no devil is entitled to do that. It's only us. Every single promise that God has ever made has become yes in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we partake, as we participate, as we participate in this meal spiritually, we are, <clears throat> in a sense, assimilating, uh, assuming, appropriating everything that Jesus has done on the cross for us. What a wonderful thing this is. And before we break bread together this morning, Let's just have a look at the warning. Why this warning? See, Paul warns that if you come to this table in a cavalier, callous or careless way, and you do not discern the seriousness of what happened on the cross, if you neglect to acknowledge the body of Christ, the gathered believers around you, you are quite potentially able to come under the Lord's discipline, which includes even the losing of your life. Let me read 1 Corinthians 11, 27 again slowly as we move joyfully and seriously to the Lord's table. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, that just means that I don't trust and treasure the precious gift of Christ. It's just something I do on a Sunday occasionally when I come to church. Chop, chop, and then I can leave, you know. As soon as I get this over with, it means it's now time to leave. I don't come in that unworthy manner. I come knowing what he has done for me. I come thinking about him who took all my sin for all time took my effort, took my pathetic abilities to try and become righteous before him. He took all of that away, and I find everything I have to find in him and him alone. 
It's not because I've got a tie on at communion today that I'm able to stand before him. There's nothing that I bring of my own doing. There's no church tradition. There's no church teaching. There's no mysticism or anything else. There's nothing that makes me worthy. Because every single one of those things would result in me becoming unworthy. Or doing this rather in an unworthy manner. So whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Then he says a man ought to examine himself. It's not to see if you're good enough, but it is to see if you're willing to turn away from yourself and to trust Jesus for what you actually need. Man ought to examine himself. It is to say, Here's the word. This is what the word says. The Bible instructs me. If you do not forgive your brother who sins against you, your father in heaven cannot forgive you. So I sit here in church and I've got unforgiveness in my heart towards people, towards institutions, towards the government, towards whatever, whoever has wronged me. Friends, you were guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. That's how serious this is. So I examine myself. How am I treating my fellow man? How am I treating my employees, my employer? Am I in line with God's word? You know, how am I treating Jesus as I go about my life? A man ought to examine himself before he eats the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord, and that's everyone around you, eats and drinks judgment on himself. The saddest thing I ever hear at times like this is people saying, well, they're not going to have communion because their lives aren't quite right. And why not? I've heard it, if I've heard it once, I've heard it a hundred times. Couldn't take communion today because my life's not right. Huh? Your life's not right? And Jesus could come back today? You know? Why is your life not right? Sort it out. This is a time of grace and forgiveness and cleansing and every other spiritual factor in God's word with every promise complete. And somehow... I feel that I'm important enough not to take communion. That's what it is. It's such self-bloated pride. Anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body, that's everyone around us, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are sick. And that's not to say every time you're sick and every time somebody dies, it's because they did this badly. You know, that's just like, you know. That's just stupid. Don't start thinking like, maybe I'm sitting here sick before. Well, start with that. If you're sitting here sick today, start with that. Maybe it is this. You've got unforgiveness in your heart, and I'm beating on that today, and I don't know why, but maybe there's somebody with unforgiveness. Maybe it's even God you need to forgive. I mean, that sounds silly and and, and, uh, blasphemous. But sometimes we do. We hold God accountable because I lost my business, because I lost my job, because of this, that. God, it's your fault, you know. Santa Claus, you should have come in time. 
If we judged ourselves, Paul says, we wouldn't come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined, so we will not be condemned. That means being sent to hell with the world. Isn't that amazing? That God in his grace and his mercy and his love for his children is so kind to us that when we <clears throat> take for granted, when we in an unworthy manner come to this table, he sometimes even makes us sick and weak and even dies us so that we are not condemned and go to hell. That's how much God loves us. It's crazy to even think. So don't take this time lightly. It's one of the most precious gifts Christ has given to the church. We value it today. We eat together today in one accord. We make sure we don't come in an unworthy manner, bringing our works before the Lord, bringing our thinks about what it should be or shouldn't be. We just come in its simplicity. We focus upon him, mentally engaged, aware that we're participating in the spiritual life of the God who is spirit. He's not a golden calf and he's not a uh, Father Christmas or anything else. He is spirit. And we are able today to participate with him in this unique, simple manner that he has commanded us to do until he comes. As we, the church, proclaim our Savior died for us, coming again, and you too can know him, and you too can have your sins forgiven, and you too can believe, and you too could come to this time knowing that Jesus is Lord, and he's done it all on our behalf. Amen.